We're going to be going to Isaiah 61 this morning, folks. Isaiah 61. Um, So as I said earlier on, the two services today, we're going to be reflecting on how a resurrected Savior changes absolutely everything. And it's absolutely incredible to think of just the impact that this one event can have on our lives. You know, our lives can still often be marked by heartache and fear, and so many of us can bear the scars even that we've gained while being saved and walking with the Lord. And yet because of the Savior, we have an anchor for our souls, which is both sure and steadfast, according to Hebrews 6. And because of the resurrection, our lives can be described as that, sure and steadfast. The reality is, though, that we know many, many people, whether it is in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our social circle, who do not have that same kind of hope. They do not have that same kind of assurance. They have broken hearts, and yet they've got no remedy to cure such a thing. They try many different remedies. They try many different solutions, and it doesn't work. And so they're caught in this vicious cycle of trying to always fill in the gap and trying to fill in the gap and fill in this emptiness, fill this void, fill this with more and more stuff. But it, it never gives lasting joy never gives lasting peace. And the word lasting is important because I think sometimes we forget as a church, sin is fun. Sin is fun. That's why people do it. That's why people keep running back to it. That's why people choose it over other things. But it doesn't give you lasting joy. It doesn't give lasting peace. What it leads to is, is heartbreak. What it leads to is, is damage and, and frustration and ultimately hell. With Christ, there's lasting joy, lasting peace. So different. So different. And for us who are believers, we know that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all those other things that the people who are outside of Christ are so desperately searching for. And as a result, we have our responsibility as believers to live out lives that point to a resurrected Savior that scream out, He is alive and alive in me. Now, we're not all scholars and philosophers, I know. We're not all teachers who would be able to speak in front of a room of people. We're not always the most confident but what we all are, are examples of what God can do with the life that is given to him. And to show, that, to show people that sure and steadfast anchor that gives us that lasting joy and that lasting peace. We're going to read a couple of verses from Isaiah 61 to set things up. And, and as we're, we go through it, I want you to remember something. These are the words that Jesus first teaches from whenever he begins his public ministry in Luke 4. Okay, so what we're looking at is, is the very words that Jesus applies to himself. Isaiah, uh, oh sorry, that says 6, but it's 61. Apologies. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, that's supposed to be chapter 61. But to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. Now, Jesus quotes this right at the beginning of his ministry. In Luke 4, uh, we read that he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness, he gets tempted by the devil, he comes back, and he goes through some towns, and then gets to Nazareth, heads to the synagogue, stands up, unrolls the scroll, and reads this passage, and then says, this is me. I am he who has spoken of. It's me. This is my ministry. I'm the one Isaiah spoke about, which didn't go down well at the time. But right from the start, he says, this is my ministry. This is what I'm about. And so what I want to do with this message this morning is two things. I want to first of all say that his ministry is our message. This is our message. And the second thing that I want to do is then show you how to take this message and apply it to the people around you. When you meet people who are broken in this world, how we can take them to the cross and show them the life that Christ wants to give them instead of that brokenness that they have. That's the idea, okay? So there's kind of two parts to it this morning. So let's look at the language of Isaiah's words because one thing emerges and the idea of the ministry is not to simply remove pain and suffering to stop people from sinning, but rather to pick one word to describe it all, it is exchange. It's all part of the great exchange. With the cross, we often put it in terms of he has, uh, instead of sin, he has given us righteousness. But Isaiah and Jesus in Luke goes further. They, they point to the fact that the gospel is so much more than that instead of captivity we get liberty instead of chains we get freedom instead of grief we get comfort instead of ashes there's a headdress so instead of dressing for a funeral we're getting ready for a wedding instead of a faint spirit we have a garment of praise a great and glorious exchange that takes place of what we give up with the old life and what we gain with the new life in christ And I love this, that the cross, the gospel, is not simply to make us not do bad things anymore. It's not simply a demand to repent, but the gospel is a great exchange that through our repentance, okay, through our repentance, we're not only leaving behind an old life of sin, but that the old self dies and in its place there is a new life. And for the full study of that, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8. It's beautiful. It's glorious. A concise summary is in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old life's gone. I got a brand new life now completely different. And it's more than just, well, I don't sin as much as what I used to. It's more than that. 
Jesus explained it to us many times that being a follower means more than paying lip service. It's more than just looking apart. Jesus was very adamant about this and he riled against the, the religious elite who lorded over people who looked down on others and says, you're, not, you're, you're missing the point. You're missing it. He says, rather than just playing a part in lip service, and there's an exchange that needs to take place. And, and, and Matthew 12 sums it up so good. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, the same way that that sprout, that little seedling, is it, still technically, yes, it, it's the seed. It's transformed. It's not what it used to be at all. Had to shed its skin, had to, had to get rid of what it used to be. And this is a picture of what it means to be saved. It goes in, we, 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 we die to ourselves, and yes, biologically we are the same, we are, but we are transformed. And we bear fruit. That love and that joy and that peace that comes from the Spirit of God in us. And it's so important that as Christians, as a church, we never forget that the gospel is so much more than ceasing from sin. So much more than ceasing from sin. But it is ceasing from sin and growing into the likeness of God for the glory of God. That's the call. To simply stop at repentance is to only get half of what the gospel is saying. And I fear so many Christians miss out on this as a result. And it's part of the reason why so many Christians are bad ambassadors for Jesus. It's because we've only got half the message. And we run around telling people, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop saying this, stop looking like that, stop talking like this, stop watching that, stop, 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 stop. And we wonder why nobody's repenting. Because we've only given them half the message. We've told them what must be given up. I never once told them what could be gained. Now, just as, as we move on, can I also worth saying that for some, they also share half a message, but they share the other half. And they promise all the fullness, but they never share what needs to be given up. That too is dangerously poisonous. that if we were to continue in sin, ignoring what sin does to our relationship with God, that is no gospel. That's no gospel. Okay. Um, I was hoping Ruth was going to be in crash this morning, but she's here. <laughs> Let me share a story. This was long ago. Um, I was 17 at the time in, in my prime. Right? That's, that's a long time ago. A long time ago. I, I was going with a girl and I was head over heels for her. And uh, <laughs> um, to the point where many, many people were asking the question, why is she going out with you? Now, as a general rule, I've never stopped to ask this question. Um, it never ends well for me. Um, so I just, thankfully, Ruth still hasn't asked the question, but um, there we go. Um, we're going out, and uh, 
I felt the Lord was telling me, though, that this girl wasn't right for me, that I really should end it. It's not right. And I dug my heels in. And I was like, Lord, you can't do that to me. You can't somehow have this girl convinced that I'm worth going out with. And then of all things, I turn around and say no to her. God, and forgive me for maybe sounding politically incorrect, or, but this is the story, and this is, I, I'm a different man now. And, but I, I said, Lord, she's really hot. You made her. You know how hot she is. Don't make me give up something that you made. Now, eventually, God's response to my defiance was, well, Jeff, here, here's the rub of it. If you don't end it, I will. And somewhere in between me fighting God and God winning, because that's how it normally goes, there was a night I got a phone call from some of her friends. Now, unbeknown to me, um, this sweet, hot Christian girl that I was going out with was having a, a bit of a double life, and she had went to a party, had got drunk, and was hanging off a toilet, semi-conscious. And uh, her friends couldn't ring her parents. Well, sorry, no, they, they wouldn't ring her parents and wondered if I would come and sort her out. So I, I made some excuse to my parents that I was taking the car out quite late because I had to go see um, the girl and went. She was a mess. But in my head, hey, I loved her. I cared for her. But I had a choice. I could say, well, because I love her, I'm going to accept her as she really is. Because I love her, this is who she is, and I accept her, and it would be wrong for me to try and change her, to try and make her conform to my standards. To f I love her as she is. Or I could have walked in to that bathroom, seen her, and says, because I love you, I'm not going to leave you the way you are. Because I love you, I'm going to make sure that we clean you up, we sober you up, and we get you home safe. Now, the point of that story from long ago, Ruth, is that God loves each and every person far too much to leave us in our sin. His love doesn't just say, well, I accept you as you are. He says, I see who you really are. I love who you are. But I love you too much to leave you like that. Now, God never says that the li this life will be easy following him. But what he does say is that this life is victorious, that this life is worth it that sin will have no more hold. Romans 6 says that sin will no longer have dominion over you, for we are not under the law, but now under grace. Those wonderful verses in Romans 8 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not so along with him freely give us all things? It's not just about leaving sin behind. But this wonderful life where he says, I love you too much to leave you where you are, so I'm going to clean you up, and I'm going to get you home safe we hand over our sin and exchange we have that indwelling of the Spirit of God and the emptiness that so many people experience and try to fill with so much stuff is exchanged for satisfaction and peace. And the role of the church is so much more than just telling people that they need to be saved. The great commission is to make disciples, to make people who will follow him, will walk with him. Our message is that there is a great exchange that needs to take place. It's more than saying repent, but it says we start with repent because you cannot start anywhere else other than repentance. It has to start with repentance. But then... With the Spirit of God's help indwelling in us, we live a life built on grace that is saturated by the desire to see God glorified and magnified and exalted. And I'm so sorry to be laboring this this morning. I really didn't think I'd be taking so much longer to, to do this, but it's important that we never cheapen our gospel by leaving part of it out. We start with confession of sin and repentance. But this new life in Christ has so, so much more to offer. First Peter, and I encourage you, there's going to be lots of verses coming up. Write them down, jot them down, and then study them this week. Study them this afternoon. First Peter is so good at this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Now there's a new life. You want purpose, you want meaning. There you go. A picture of a life that is totally sold out to God, a surrendered life. Or First Peter 4, oh, I love this. If anyone speaks, <laughs> she speak as one conveying the words of God. If anyone serves, let him serve with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Christian, if you are struggling to find your place in the church, if you're struggling to figure out what type of ministry you should have, start in Isaiah 61. Start with this idea of the great exchange and then see a world that is full of people who are desperate to fill this void and this brokenness and they're looking for something that satisfies. They're looking for something that makes effects. They're looking for something. They're looking for answers. And with that then, let's go on to the second part of our message. What does a broken heart look like? There's lots of different shapes to a broken heart. I mean, we know that uh, when we talk about a broken heart, it's not a literal thing. You know, you don't read it. You're not reading a novel and you read that we Mary's has a broken heart and you're thinking, oh, Flair, I hope someone calls the paramedics and gets the defibrillators out. She has a broken heart. That, that's not the meaning, but it certainly is a real thing. Well, what we do know is, and this is such an important verse for anyone who has an interest in sharing the gospel. What a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to start. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. 
so often the first thing whenever you feel that you've, you've reached out and the world has pushed you away uh, and you feel that you've been turned down, you feel that you've been devalued, what's the feeling that you feel? Rejected. And it is a deep feeling. It's a hard feeling to come to terms with. It feels like everyone's walked away. But the Lord is close to the brokenhearted saves the crushed in spirit. We often talk about a broken heart. The Hebrew word is shabar. Literally means crushed or shattered. If you break your leg, it's shabard. You break a window pane, it's shabard. I think it's a wonderful way to describe a broken heart. Your hope is crushed. Your confidence is shattered. Your happiness is ripped up into a million different pieces, never to be sewn back together again without those scars intact. Peace is far away, crippled with a broken heart. It feels like a good description to me. And so can I take you to the cross? Here I want to show you four shapes of a broken heart very quickly and how we can get alongside people and point them to Jesus. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at the cross and link it to the people so you can understand what's happening. But really whenever you're speaking, you start with the people and then you link it to the cross. So you're going to go the other way. I'm going one way, you're going to go the other way. Just to, so you maybe um, it's different when you're teaching it and then maybe applying it. The first shape of a broken heart is despair. Have you ever met someone who is simply despairing? In my mind, I've got someone who's feeling deserted, abandoned. A wife who's been told by her husband that she's no longer loved. She doesn't bring joy to him anymore. She's been replaced. Think of children who watch ch parents fight over them, and yet all the parents are always too busy to spend any quality time with them. Think of a refugee. Think of the homeless. I think of anyone who would scream out, Why? Why? Why is this happening to me? And I think of the cross, and I think of Christ as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you? I think of him in, 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 the, in the garden, the, the night he was betrayed, and he, the night he was arrested, and he, he's sweating these drops of blood, such as the stress and the anxiety, and he's going, why? Oh, why? The anguish, the despair. Would these people not also be crying out, Why, God? Losing sleep, unable to sleep. A despairing heart is a heart that has been broken by a very powerful emotion because it feels you're invisible. It feels that you're unloved or unlovable. But the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. Listen to me. If you are despairing in church this morning, let me say God knows how you feel. He's not distant from this, but rather he's been there. He's been crushed under the weight of the sin that is crushing you. He has borne all those actions and thoughts that bring you your pain and bring you your tears and bring you your sleepless nights. He knows the weight of it. He's borne the weight of it. And in your brokenness, he is nearer than you think. And he is a lifter of hearts. He is a lifter of burdens. If only you would give them over to him. Instead of 
allowing that weight to sit there. Instead of trying to figure out how you're going to find the strength to lift it yourself, you cast them before the Lord. Despair can suck you into a darkness like you've never known before. And it can terrify you. The thoughts and feelings that consume you can be paralyzing. You can feel like you've fallen into a deep pit and you can't get out. But Psalm 40 says, He has lifted me out of the pit of despair. What a verse. He has lifted me out of the pit of despair and he set my, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock on the solid ground and steadied me as I walk along. I love that. Not only does it say that we're rescued from the despair, but also in exchange for that despair, in exchange for being down in that pit, we also get to move forward on solid ground, on a foundation that is stable and secure and move on with our lives and go forward with him regardless of what put us into that pit of despair, he is a lifter of hearts because he's near to the brokenhearted. Jesus told the disciples, in this world you will have sorrow, but take heart. Or another way of translating, do not despair, for I have overcome the world. This life is not trouble-free. Jesus did not sugarcoat it what it means to follow him. Life will be hard, but our hope does not lie in our circumstances. Our hope lies in what Christ has done. He has overcome sin and death, and he is alive, and he is with us, even in these times. The second shape is is disgrace. When we go to the cross, we find that Christ was stripped so that the soldiers could gamble over his clothes. Now, the general consensus is that he was crucified naked. There is a reasonable sized minority that believes that the Jewish people were given some discretion there. So there, there might have been a loincloth or something. But either way, the whole idea of crucifixion on top of the physical pain was to bring shame and embarrassment to someone. Right? The Jews said anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. When I think of people facing shame, I think really of two things. I think of ego and failure because that's really where shame lives. And depending on how much ego you have and how much failure you have, that's how much shame you're going to have. Whenever we think we've failed, we don't want other people to know about it. We want to hide it. We want to um, not let other people know because our ego hates what people will think of us feeling. We hate it and we're consumed with this. Well, what will people think? What will people say? What are they going to think about me now? What are my opportunities going to be now? What's going to happen next? And we're crippled by this deep sense of shame. We've let our family down. We've let our spouse down. We've let our friends down. We've let ourselves down. We've let God down. We've let, and we withdraw. And we feel that the best thing to do is try and hide. And like Christ on the cross, we feel exposed. Because it's the most natural reaction to nakedness. Think Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Whenever they had sinned, what was the first thing that they realized? They realized that they were naked. And in their shame, they try to hide their nakedness. Shame brings about a temptation to be in denial, to avoid people, to suppress our true feelings, our true self. And I'm talking about more than something silly where a group of friends, they can laugh about it. I'm thinking more about leaving a room of people and they've said something 
or they've done something, or they've and it makes you feel like you can never go back into that room again. You can never go and face those people again. And, and I mean that to a level where you can hide away and the shame could spiral even towards suicide. So much suicide stems from shame because I can't escape the reality, the consequences of what I've done, what people are thinking, what people are saying, what people are doing. And it's the only way to escape the shame. Now, most of us will try to numb shame and the hurt with by eating a tub of ice cream or fast food, watching a movie or five. Anyone numb pain by eating? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. And then normally what happens is people come around and talk us back into the real world. And, but there's this innate sense of not wanting to come back into reality. We go into the films and we go into social media and we go into fast food or whatever because we want to escape. Look to the cross. Christ knows about shame. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was not unfamiliar with pain and suffering of this life. He knew temptation. He knew sorrow. He knew fear and death. He experienced rejection and loss and poverty and loneliness and abuse and betrayal. There's not one tear that any one of us has shed that he doesn't know about. There's not one tear that he doesn't understand. He took on the sin and shame and sorrow of us all on the cross. And he bore the weight of our guilt. The weight of our guilt and the weight of our punishment. And I go in my Bible to Second Samuel chapter 9 and I read about how King Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle and David is now the king and he's wanting to reach out to, to Mephibosheth. And now we know about Mephibosheth, according to 2 Samuel 4, his nurse heard that, that his father and granddaughter are dead. And so she, she knows that the thing that a king does is try to you know, um, exterminate any uh, possible challenges to the throne. So she takes Mephibosheth, he's five years old. She picks him up and she runs, she trips, she drops him and he falls and he's lame. And now Mephibosheth is spending his life in hiding, in shame, scared of being found out, scared of anyone going, oh, here, aren't you so-and-so? Oh, no, no, don't, don't, don't connect me to my past. I don't want anyone to know who I am. I just want to hide. I just want to lie low. Don't anyone talk to me. Don't anyone make eye contact. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And yet in Second Samuel 9, what we find is that after all that hiding, he realizes that the king actually just wants to bless him. Now, so many people might talk the way Mephibosheth might want to talk. I've been dropped. I got dumped. Or I got overlooked in work. I got sacked. I got made redundant. I got abandoned. They dropped me. They dropped me. And even though it happened ages ago, you're still carrying this internal limp. <laughs> you're still not quite the same ever since. Imagine then the difference to Mephibosheth's attitude and experience when David the king, and he realized that he wanted to show kindness. There are people carrying a broken heart of shame and disgrace, and yet the message of the great exchange is the king wants to show kindness.
1 John says, if we confess our sins, if we admit, yeah, I, I've messed up in my life. I have done wrong. I've made mistakes. I, I thought I was doing the right with the tools and the information I had at the time, but I know I've made mistakes. He's going to punish. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 9, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Praise God. Third shape is being defenseless. Remember on the cross how Christ was beaten and abused, given over to cruel men, how hard it was for Jesus to breathe. We spoke a lot about this uh, in the month leading up to Easter. How tough it would have been to be on the cross. There would be a sense of being unable to carry on that you can't save yourself. That was part of the accusation. If you are truly the Messiah, come down and save yourself. But Jesus knew, I can't do that. Well, I won't do that. But so many people feel powerless in today's society. Whether it feels like the system is rigged against them, for some it's because of their skin color, for some it's because of their gender, for others it's just poverty trap, for others it's unemployment. Regardless of the cause, we can all feel powerless. The result is the same we feel fatalistic. I can't do anything to change this. No matter what I do, it's not going to make any difference. I'm stuck here. It's a hopeless situation. No matter what I do, I'm either the bad guy or I don't make any impact whatsoever. I'm stuck. I can make no difference to my situation whatsoever. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, had been praying, and one of the things that he said was, Father, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus didn't pull away from being powerless. He, rather, he, he lent into it. We said, okay, this isn't what, uh, what I want, uh, what, about what my goals are, about what my preferences are. God, this is all about what you want me to do in this moment, in this time. And you see, the secret of overcoming powerlessness is not to try and take control of your own life, but rather surrendering all power to God who is in total control. To a God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we could even think or imagine. Write down this, this fast room. Isaiah 40. Uh, that's maybe a wee bit small for some. Uh, Isaiah 40, uh, verses 28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Amen. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is not about your powerlessness. It's about his power. What an exchange. 
Instead of a broken heart by despair, God will lift us up out of the pit and put us on solid ground. Instead of a broken heart by disgrace and shame for those who've been dropped by this world, God says, I'm a king who wants to show you kindness. Instead of a heart broken by feeling defenseless and powerless, he says, I am sufficient for you. My grace is enough. And very quickly, I know I'm running out of time. The last one, a broken heart by darkness. Again, starting at the cross, we read that there was a pervasive darkness that covered the land for three hours. Nothing scarier than the dark. Doesn't matter who you are, we've all been intimidated by the dark. You go somewhere that you don't know, the lights go out, power bank, you've no idea what's happening, who's around you. It can be intimidating than if it was in the middle of the day. There's nothing worse than being lost in the dark. Makes you uncomfortable, makes you nervous, puts you on edge. Maybe for someone in church this morning, you feel like you're lost in the darkness, okay? The darkness isn't a literal one, but yeah, it's, it's real. The darkness is real. You have no idea what's going on around you. You have no idea what's in store. You don't know what's coming up. Maybe there's a sickness and that's casting a dark shadow over your life. Maybe it's a job cuts that are being rumored and you're not sure what's going to be happening next. Maybe it's exams and then come September, you're supposed to have a plan. You don't have a plan yet. And it's kind of, I have no idea where I'm supposed to be going next. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And there's this darkness that says, I'm not really sure what, what's happening. Or maybe it's things that have happened in the past and you're still trying to live under the shadow of those things because nothing you can do can escape the influence of that event. There's been a death of a loved one and you just can't forget. There, there's been previous heartbreak as you try to begin a new relationship and there's a darkness being cast over your relationship. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. When you'd imagine being outside in the middle of the night, in my head, I'm imagining some of the weekends that I've spent down in Castlewell and Castle, and you go out on a Friday night around midnight, one o'clock, and you start walking around the lake, and it's pitch black. And of course, because it's a group of youth or whatever, you know, only a quarter of them have brought any lights with them. And um, if you don't want to trip or fall into the lake or walk into a tree, if you want to walk with the benefit of the light. Where do you walk? You walk beside someone who's got the light. Now, you want to be as close to the source as possible because that brings the most clarity. Now, you could follow someone from a distance, yes, because that's how, that's how lighthouses work. But you're only going to know roughly what's happening. When you're truly lost, the best place to be is as close to the source, to the light, as possible. I wonder if there's anyone walking a wee bit aimlessly at the minute. Kind of not really sure where you're going, kind of staggering from one thing to another and it's not really with any real purpose or certainty. And you're wondering what direction is the right one. You're wondering what the next step really ought to be. The great exchange promises that darkness will be exchanged for light. So the question is really, Christian, how, how closely are you following? How closely are you following? Are you following from a distance, you know, roughly the right direction? Yeah, okay, I know I'm kind of supposed to be going that direction, but the specifics are a wee bit fuzzy because you're not that interested in getting too close to God. So I'm kind of happy, kind of hanging back a wee bit. 
messing around with me, but I, I, I don't want to go that far. You don't really pray the way you ought. It's just either infrequent or it's impersonal. You kind of just be in repetition. You don't read with the fervency or passion that you used to do, and then you complain that God doesn't speak because you don't hear him, but really you're simply refusing to get in a position where you can hear him. He is the light of the world. Folks, do not settle for simply having repentance. Don't settle for simply being able to look back to a time where you prayed a prayer or raised a hand or filled out a card. That's not what the gospel offers. The gospel offers something so much more. A great exchange. So do not settle for less. Don't be prepared to say, well, I've said sorry for my sin, and now I'm prepared to just half-heartedly grumble my way through life, through heartbreak. That's not the life that God promised us. That's not the Isaiah 61 life. I wonder if you're living in the fullness of the gospel. Delight yourself in the can't emphasize that first words more. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you know why? Because your greatest desire is going to be him. It's going to be him. You know that presence. You know that peace. You know that comfort. You know him. And my God will supply every need of yours. According to how good we are, no. According to how many meetings we go to during the week? No. But according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, now there's something that we can get on board with. Oh, there's something that we could get. I'm only thinking about it now. But the words of the hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God that calm and heavenly frame. May that be the cry of our hearts this morning. May we remember the gospel, the fullness of it. And may we be prepared then to take that gospel out into the world and point others to the cross in this world of all kinds of heartbreak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,